You know, if you look on the internet, you will see a plethora of sites that have famous last words. You know, these are um, words of people who are dying or who, you know, said something very poignant or stupid or whatever at the end of their life. And um, so I, I got a few of them. Uh, the first one is uh, from Oscar Wilde, who maybe his last quote is more reminiscent of his name. He says, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or the other of us has to go. Um, Karl Marx, of all people, said, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And then um, a French grammarian said, I'm about to, or I'm going to, die. Either expression is used. And then uh, the saddest one, I think, is Joan Crawford, the old, older actress. She said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Ooh. But Luther, in his humility, all he said was, we are beggars. This is true. And uh, so this past week, I, I just finished a book called Fall and Rise. It's the story of 9-11. It's been in my Audible library for a while, and I finally uh, got to finish, listen, and read it. And what really struck me in all the tragedy, all the people who were able to make phone calls before they died, the 2,977 victims, they all said, I love you. I love you. And they didn't know that they were going to die, but they knew their time was short. That was what really mattered at the moment. Now, if you knew that tonight would be your last night on earth, what would you share with your family and friends? What lasting memory would you want to leave them with? In our passage today, and hopefully, if you're new here, um, we have some of these on the, uh, on the table out there. Jesus wanted to leave his disciples and us a legacy of an example that grows out of a relationship with him. Jesus didn't just say, I love you. He wanted to show how to say it through the cross and through servanthood. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus was very purposeful, wasn't he? He knew his time was short. And this is what the Gospel of John, chapters 13 to 17, is all about. These are his final words to the disciples, private words that the Apostle John recorded for us. Now, you'll notice that the Apostle John, he seems to shift over lots of details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover. John seems to be more interested in theology than chronology. So, we're not going to hurry through these chapters, okay? 
we're going to take 10 weeks in what, what would be like Thursday night, the upper room discourses and all the talk that Jesus did as he walked to the garden. So, Jesus, to demonstrate what this looks like, is through servanthood. So I want to walk through the passage like this. The motive of servanthood, the model, the meaning, the mandate. So let's hop into the motive of servanthood. I'm going to go back. Just a sec. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Let's stop there. What did Jesus know? And if you want to mark up your Bible, this is a good time to do it. I see four things that he knew. First, he knew that his hour had come to depart the world to the Father. Several times in John, right? We have seen this. At the wedding feast in Canaan, he said, my hour has not come. And when they wanted to arrest him in chapter 7, he, they couldn't because his hour had not come. And then the temple treasury in chapter 8, they wanted to seize him again, and it wasn't his hour. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, Justin preached in John 12, that the Greeks came to seek him, and then Jesus replies, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. So Jesus knew that his hour had come. But he also knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus is not powerless, but the sovereign of the universe. I love I love Hebrews 1.3. It says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus knew two other things. He knew he had come from God and was going back to God. So we see his first, his resurrection and ascension here. He knew that. So this knowledge composed Jesus, and it's the motive for what he is about to do. As he is about to depart the world to his Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What does that mean? He loved them to the end. Well, he loved them all the way to the cross, right? But he also loved them to the uttermost. His love for his disciples and us knows no bounds. This love for his disciples and you and me is part of the motive to serve his disciples by washing their feet. I love Calvin, John Calvin, the reformer, comment. 
uh, this passage. It really helped me this week. So we think that we are at a distance from Christ. Yet we ought to know that he is looking at us. For he loveth his own who are in the world. For we have no reason to doubt that he still bears the same affection which he retained at the moment, the very moment of his death. Jesus knew his timeline, his power, his mission, and his final destination. And that gave him motivation to demonstrate what true loving servanthood looks like. Hence, in verses 4 and 7, we see the model of servanthood. Before we get to verse 4, um, as the supper began, Luke gives us a little tidbit, something that the disciples wasn't right, right? He said they were arguing with each other. Now, the disciples did that all the time, right? But what were they arguing about? They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, right? And then Jesus kind of stops. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. This is Luke 22, 24. And the leader as one who serves. Goes on. For who is greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Without another word, verse 4, Jesus rose for supper and he laid aside his garment and taking the towel, tied it around his waist. He begins to wash their feet. I think it's important in my mind, because I'm a visual person, to envision the scene. When I taught the kids uh, from 8 to 12 at my kids' parent Bible study, we laid on the floor, just like Jesus said. So what it isn't is, it's not Da Vinci's, okay? All right? it's, there's no code in here. Yeah, the V means something. No. Um, the, this is a great painting, but they weren't sitting at a, like, a table like a wedding feast, right? No, they were sitting more like this. Now, how do we know that? So, if, if, now I like Sherlock Holmes, so you do a little investigation. So they're laying on what side? They're laying on their left side. Why is that? Because in that culture, the left hand was used for something very different. Okay? Yeah, you figure that out, right? So they're laying on their left side so they can eat with their right. Right? They don't have utensils. They're eating with their right. But if you look at the Gospels, you know that John... Okay, oh, wait a minute. Oh, look at that. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to do it. John is to Jesus' right. How do we know that? Because it says that John was laying against the breast of Jesus, right? And I think Peter's next to John, right? Because later on, he'll kind of whisper back, hey, hey who's, who's the one that's going to betray him, right? I think that this isn't 
This is just my speculation. I think Judas is right here. Is this Jesus? This is Judas. Because later on, he's going to take the bread and dip it and hand it to Judas. So if Judas is at the other end of the table, he might not have been there. So this is Jesus. And you notice that their feet are exposed, right? So he can get up and wash their feet. And I think John kind of gives us Judas at the scene in verse 2. I'm going to let Jeremy talk about that next week. Jeremy's going to take the, the passage after this, and I'm going to let him handle verse 2. But I think John throws in Judas there so that we know that not only Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he washed an enemy's now, I am very thankful that for me, the call to worship this morning was um, Philippians 2. Uh, Mary did not know this because uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, um, uh, a scholar that I really enjoy, when he was doing his Philippians commentary, he compared Philippians 2, 6 through 8, to our passage this morning. And I think it lines up just wonderfully. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, Philippians, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But John, he rose from supper, he laid aside his honor garments, he made himself nothing. And taking the towel, he tied it around the waist, began to wash the disciples' feet. Taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself to death on the cross. What a beautiful picture. Thank you, Mary, for sharing that. What a beautiful picture of Christ's humility. And then in verse 6, you got to love Peter, right? He comes to Peter, right? And I, I think he started with Judas and went around the table, right? So he gets to Peter. Peter goes, Lord, you wash my feet? Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, right? When I'm going, when I'm doing, you don't understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter's response is just laced with pride, right? I'm Peter, right? Right? This is, this is my show, right? I'm the hero of the story here. He doesn't seem to understand Jesus' motive or meaning for what he's seen. Um, I really like what Calvin says about this. He says, this, this is just a good reminder for us. Uh, when we're faced with certain stances, we battle, right? We should not take it ill to be ignorant of, the, of those things, things which God wishes to be hidden from us for a time. For this kind of ignorance is more learned, meaning we learn more than any other kind of knowledge when we permit God to be wise above us. Like Peter, 
we are often ignorant of what God is actually doing in our lives behind the scenes. You ever notice that? One reason is that, I think, because we want to control our lives. We want to be God. And, and we want to control not just our lives, but everything around us. What does it take for us to permit God to be God, to control our lives? See, Peter should have known better, right? So I'm going to take you back to the, the triumphal entry, right, on that Sunday before the Thursday. You, you realize what the disciples are doing as they process into Jerusalem? They are singing Psalms 120 to 134. And this includes Psalm 131. Psalm 131 is one I've shared with some of you on text in, in the past year. Oh my, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not, too, are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. That's what Peter sang just a few days before, but in his mind, in his picture-puzzled mind, he has no place for Jesus to wash the disciples' feet. So what does Peter do? Well, he does the, the Peter thing, which Jesus takes to be a teachable moment. Peter says to him, this is the meaning of servanthood, you shall never wash my feet. Now, in, in Greek, and we're not allowed to use double negatives, right? But in Greek, when they want to stress something, they, he basically, Peter says, never in a million years will you wash my feet. Never. Peter is still thinking about the socially acceptable framework here. He's not seeing any theological importance. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus takes this moment to teach him and the disciples something very important. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. His answer is really a key to the gospel of salvation. Jesus alone has the exclusive right of washing of salvation because of his dying on the cross the next day and taking upon himself the sins of the people. And in three weeks, we're going to see uh, a very famous verse, John 14, 6, right? You know it may be by heart. I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. But when I look at verse 8, I, I see this exclusivity too. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is saying to Peter and to us, I must wash you. No one else can. It's then obvious to me that Jesus is knocking about not talking about physical foot washing here, right? 
He is pointing to something more than dirty feet. I love again what Calvin says. He says, we are all filthy and abominable in the sight of God until, until Christ washes away our sins. So Jesus alone has that exclusive right of the washing of salvation, which includes pardon of sins and newness of life. I love that we say, you know, he has washed us with his blood. He has washed us with his blood. Jesus' death and resurrection accomplishes this washing. But what we'll see later in the scriptures, in chapter 16, we'll see the Holy Spirit that applies this washing. If you want to turn to Titus 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 7, this is really a good summary of the gospel. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a wonderful explanation of the gospel and the work of the Trinity in redemption and salvation. I think that's the meaning of this active parable of washing of feet. But Peter still, he, he doesn't get it, right? Then he flings the other way, right? That's Peter. Simon Peter, verse 9, says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but oh, my hands, my head, my whole body. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, Peter, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. In Shakespeare's wonderful play, uh, Lady Macbeth, early in the play, right, she and her husband murder the king. And she says, a little water clears up, uh, clears us of this debt. The stain of guilt is not so easily washed away, is it? Total cleansing is needed. And, and she realizes this in scene five. She sleepwalks in a delusion. She cries, a very famous line, out damn thought. In her delusion, she looks at her hands. Who would have thought that the old man had so much blood in him. Nothing can cleanse us but the washing of Jesus Christ. We have blood on our hands. We must be cleansed by the cross. Who can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Peter believed and thus would be covered by the cross. Judas, 
he still has the same sin upon him, the folly of betrayal, to the end. So my question today is, have you been cleansed by Jesus? Have you been born of water and of the Spirit, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3? If not, come and see your Savior today. He wants to make you clean. This is the meaning of servanthood of Jesus, which leads to the remaining verses of the passage. The mandate of servanthood, verses 12 17. When he had washed his feet, verse 12, and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you, to you? He asked a simple question Do you understand? He then argued from greater to lesser. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. If Jesus, the greater one, is willing to wash feet, to serve in love, how much more should we lovingly serve? This is the only time in the Gospels, by the way, that the word example is used. Jesus acts out this parable. Not that we would physically wash each other's feet, but to give us a mandate to serve one another. He says, truly, truly, verse 16, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger, a sent one, greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Take every opportunity as we approach this new year to put yourself below others for the sake of the gospel. Going back to Philippians 2, before the passage, as the apostle Paul encouraged the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to his own, only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I have a racquetball friend, Greg. Um, he told me a really interesting story, I think, that illustrates this. He was conducting recently, he's a, a middle school orchestra conductor, among other things, and the bass player, the stand-up bass player in the far back, began to get sick. He could tell that he was kind of wavering. He runs off the stage, and he throws up in the wings. And so as, you no, know, Greg is, I don't know how he did it, but he continues to uh, orchestrate, 
there's a smell starts wasting up, right? He looks, and the principal is on her hands and knees cleaning up the vomit. And I thought, wow, what an amazing demonstration of servanthood. The principal took the lowest spot. But then, you know, I started thinking about what's the difference between that selfless serving apart from Christ? Go back to Philippians 2.5. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Another word that only appears in John once is that word messenger, I think in verse, what is it, 16? Yeah. It's the sent ones. Apostolos. We are the sent ones, the messengers of Jesus. That means we go with the gospel in hand. And what does it mean for us to serve those with the gospel? I think as we serve, we have to demonstrate the gospel, not only with our actions, but our words. So all our service should point to Christ. In our homes, we can serve our spouse and children, loving them to the uttermost, right? Only from the lowest place. When we lord over them in subtle ways, and as a parent, if you look back in your life and you, you know this, we expect to be served. This, this does not demonstrate the love that Jesus is talking about, the servanthood of the gospel. But we can be different. What about, what does it look like in your work environment? If you work in the office, maybe, it could be something as simple as maybe getting to a meeting room early to make sure it's ready, or staying late to make sure you clean up. To show people who know that you're a Christian that nothing is beneath you. They would not be beneath Jesus. And harder still, really, is setting aside your own opinions and listening well. Listening for opportunities to share the gospel. So as we begin this new year, we have this promise from Jesus. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What does that look like for us? This knowledge that leads to action. Understanding who we are in Christ through his work alone on the cross. I mentioned that I just finished in Carol's reading, Fall and Rise. It's really a tragic story of 9-11. But I was struck by several lessons in that book. First, life is short. Life is short. Not one of the 2,977 men and women and unborn who died during this tragedy thought it would be their last day on earth. Don't want to get too more, but we are not guaranteed anything. 
if we're in the Lord's hands. The other thing that hit me is there is evil in the world, right? There is evil in the world. That's why we need the grace of God to persevere. And also sacrifice is not enough, right? Sacrifice alone will not get you into the kingdom. Servanthood alone doesn't get you into God's graces. No, we must be cleansed first by Jesus' blood. So, question, are you ready to enter 2024? It's coming. If you are here, you're not quite convinced about who Jesus is, you're in the right place. We'd love to talk to you about the meaning of the cross. And for those of us that continue to repent and believe the gospel, trusting in Jesus, our Lord and teacher, we are called to serve one another. Let's start the new year by taking the Lord's place in our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces to love like Jesus and serve like him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that um, you open your word to us. We thank you that Jesus followed through and went to the cross the next day. He died for our sins. Lord, we trust in you. We thank you that he conquered sin and death, the devil and hell on the cross and resurrection. So we go into this new year, Lord, would you renew our focus that we would love each other and serve each other in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.